Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with y'all in Austin. My family and I just got back from a spring break trip to Branson, Missouri, up in the Ozarks. That is a 10-hour drive, one way, with a one-year-old. We actually chose that for ourselves, uh, and we prayed a lot on that trip uh, before, during, and after. Uh, three weeks ago, we began a new series on the Lord's Prayer. What we've been doing is going through this prayer line by line, asking why did Jesus teach us to pray this particular line in the, ser- in the Sermon on the Mount? And so far, we've covered three different aspects of what Jesus says about prayer. And the first thing is, this is how you should not pray. He says, don't pray like the pagans who think that they're going to be heard by their gods because of their many words. And also, don't pray like the hypocrites who don't really pray to God to be seen by him, but to be seen by others. Then he teaches us to address our prayer to our Heavenly Father. And this is such good news because we're actually estranged from God because of our sin, but because of Jesus, we're adopted by God. Third and finally, we talked about how Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be thy name. We're asking for God to make his name more holy to us. We can't add to its holiness. We can't subtract from its holiness. He can only make it more holy to us. The next section that we're going to talk about this morning is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you could tell from the songs we've sung this morning that we're, we're focusing on God's kingdom. And these three phrases are obviously connected. God's kingdom just is where his will is done. But Jesus adds a, a, a very important phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. See, this shows us the difference between God, our heavenly king, and every single earthly ruler. God's will is perfectly done in heaven, and we're asking God to make earth more like heaven, where God's will is always done. And I really don't think it's shocking to most of us that Jesus teaches us to pray these three lines, because if you look around for two seconds, you'll see God's will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not rocket science, even though sometimes we're very surprised by evil in the world. Jesus knows that wars break out because of pitiful, power-hungry tyrants. He knows that economies will collapse because of greed. He knows that families are broken by infidelity. He knows that lives are ruined by selfishness. And it's not just that everybody else doesn't do God's will. He's showing to us that you and I don't do God's will. We abandon God's peace for chaos and his justice for oppression. We abandon his righteousness for wickedness. Now, depending upon Christians' time and place, I think Christians often swing back and forth on a pendulum between two different attitudes about the church's state on earth. I think right now many Christians I meet are pessimistic. And often they have very understandable reasons. There's so much scandal in the church Due to Christians' own behavior, it's so hard to be anything other than pessimistic sometimes. I think at other times in our history, Christians have been very triumphalistic. And often they had very understandable reasons. Churches were full to the brim. It seemed like nothing could go wrong. Sometimes if your personality is bent one way or the other, you probably find yourself on a different spot on this pendulum. But I think it shows us why we all need to be taught 
this line in the Lord's Prayer because this line in Christ's prayer helps us see the way that Jesus sees. I'm in a Bible study of um, young professionals in Austin, and one of the leaders, his name is Luis, he put it to me perfectly. He said, the best part of the Lord's Prayer is perspective. Because without the Lord's Prayer, you can just be sucked into the stress and worries of this world and your life. You can become myopic, totally ignoring the bigger picture and hyper-focused on your stress and your stress alone. Without this prayer, the times in which we live can dominate the way we think. There's a Christian writer named Aaron Wren who puts it this way. All too many of us are caught up in the fray. Every day brings a new hot topic we have to post about. We can't resist giving our hot takes on whatever the event of the day is. Many people, and that we need to consider ourselves in this group, many people are tossed here and there by the waves of social media. Our attention is shifted from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. We're constantly bombarded with messages telling us what is important. But I love the Lord's Prayer because it helps you zoom out of the fray and it gives you perspective, not just on the whole world, but all of God's kingdom and what he's up to in the world so that you avoid the two extremes of, those, of that pendulum. The pitfall of pessimism and cynicism and the arrogance of triumphalism. We need to see from the perspective of God. So what we're going to do this morning is look at three passages. Two of them have already been read this morning. One from 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Another from the prophet Daniel, also in the Old Testament. And then one, uh, one of Jesus' teachings in Mark chapter 4. Now this first one actually shows us God's own hesitancy towards human kingdoms. So if you have a Bible with you, turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you see a black Bible in the pew racks in front of you, I'm going to tell you what page it's on. It's on page 218. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're starting in verse 6. Okay? Now, if you're watching online or you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, any talk about kingdom may ring alarm bells for you. Many of us associate any kind of kingdom with oppression and authoritarianism and abuse of power. But here's the good news. You're in good company because God himself has concerns about human kingdoms. This passage from 1 Samuel chapter 8 begins with a leader in Israel being told with, by a united Israel that they want a king. The people of God say in verse 6, if you look down at your Bibles, give us a king to lead us. Now, if you've read the Bible up to that point, you know that God has already talked about kings in Israel. He knows Israel is going to have human kings. The problem is that they're asking for a human king instead of God. Not a human king in subjection to God, a human king to replace God. And that request makes Samuel upset. But the Lord has to tell him in his prayer, Samuel... It's not you they've rejected. They have rejected me as their king. You see why this request goes against God's will? He's fine with human kings in subjection to him, but they've rejected God as their ultimate king. And so God says, I just want you to let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. In other words, Israel, be careful what you pray for. 
This is what the king will do. First of all, he's going to take your sons. He's going to make them serve with his chariots. He's going to assign them to be commanders. He's going to put him in his own personal army. And you know what they're going to do when they go fight? They're going to die. And it's not just your boys that are going to be taken. It's going to be your daughters too. Don't think that they're going to be excused. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He's going to tell everybody what their job is. And then third, all the work that you do in your fields, he's, by the way, he's going to take the best of that. He's not going to take the leftovers or what you don't need. He's going to take the cream of the crop from you. Then he'll take your servants. Even the people who work for you will ultimately work for the king. And then finally, if there's nothing else left, he's going to take you and you yourselves will become the slaves of the king. Look at the word that begins every single one of these bullet points. He's going to take, 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 take. Everything you have, everything that rightfully belongs to you will be the king's. This is what you're asking for. The king is going to do what Adam and Eve did in the garden. He's going to take what he does not deserve and has not earned. He's going to claim what's not his. And what's going to happen after he takes everything you have? Well, you're, you're going to cry out to God for help. But here's the issue. When that day comes and you're distressed because of all the stuff that the king has taken from you, you're going to cry out for relief from that king that you have chosen but the Lord is not going to answer you in that day. Now, I know that this makes God seem to be harsh, but think about what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to know you can't partially reject me. You can't say, God, we don't want you right now, but when we need you later, we'll have you back in a jiffy. No, 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 that's not going to work with God. That's not the relationship that God wants. You're rejecting me wholesale now and in the time of need. So I actually won't come on that day that you call out frustrated about your kings. And here's the thing. Samuel gives all of these warnings to the Israelites, and surprise, surprise, they refuse to listen. No. We still want a king over us, for then we'll be like everybody else. We'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Despite God's warnings, all of his red flags that he's waving at us about having human kingdoms, we still ask for them anyways. Our human kingdoms are always going to fall short of God's glory. Now, eventually, the kings in Israel become so corrupt over centuries that God punishes his own people, the Israelites. He allows the Jews to be conquered by Babylon, deported into other nations, and sent into exile. But the good news is that God doesn't give up on them. By the time of the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, we start to hear that God has a plan to bring his own kingdom. It's not going to be a merely human kingdom. It's going to be God's kingdom. While in exile, there's one Jew named Daniel who is called to meet with the Babylonian king. And this, this king had been having bad dreams and heard that this Jewish man, Daniel, could interpret these dreams. And so this foreign king says to Daniel, a prophet of God, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel tells him perfectly. He says, 
O king, you've been dreaming of this statue made of many different substances. And this huge statue was struck by a flying rock, not made by human hands. And that huge statue, although it was made of metals, totally crumbled into dust and vanished. And all that was left behind in your dream was this tiny little rock, which grew and grew and grew and grew until it became a mountain, which filled the whole earth. Daniel recites this dream exactly as the king dreamed it. And you might be thinking, well, that's a very trippy dream, but we'll never know what that could possibly mean. Fortunately, Daniel interprets this dream. He says that these statues represent kingdoms. You see, we're back to square one. This has been the issue from the beginning, evil human kingdoms. And he said each metal in this statue symbolizes a different kingdom. The gold in the statue represents the Babylonian Empire. After them is symbolized the Persian Empire. After them is the, the Greece, the Greek Empire. And then finally, the Roman Empire. And listen to this for a second, okay? Daniel says, in the time of these kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a new kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. This new kingdom will crush all these kingdoms you see on the screen and bring them to an end. But this new kingdom will endure forever. Think about that for a second. The prophet Daniel, who lived centuries before Jesus, says that in the time of the Roman Empire, there's going to be a new kingdom and a new king. Can we think of a kingdom in the Bible that started around the time of the Roman Empire? We can, because we have the New Testament. The kingdom that Daniel prophesied centuries before Jesus was on the scene is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All those other human kingdoms are dust when Jesus comes around. And here's the beautiful thing about Jesus' kingdom. Every time he comes on the scene, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he doesn't conquer anybody by violence. He doesn't gather up an army to defeat the Roman Empire. He does it by conversion. He didn't win over by conquest. He changed hearts and minds through preaching and healing. Our Lord won over people by repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. Can you believe this? Just pause and reflect on that for a second. In the middle of the Roman Empire, Daniel says there's going to be this new kingdom, and that kingdom will never end. And guess what? That kingdom that was started 2,000 years ago is still going today. Jesus even says in his parables in the Gospel of Mark exactly how this kingdom is going to grow. He says this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, and night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed all by itself is going to sprout and grow, though he doesn't know how. He goes on to say, what, what, what is the kingdom of God like? It, it's like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed on earth. It starts this big, but then it slowly becomes the largest plant in the garden. Jesus' own parables predict the future that we're living in right now. In the past 2,000 years, the kingdoms of this world have been smashed by a small rock called the kingdom of God. Even though God's kingdom started in a small nowhere town called Nazareth, even though it was a 12 fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, 
every single proud and arrogant regime that has ever existed on planet earth has come and gone and the kingdom of God marches on. Yes, the kingdom takes its sweet time, but the kingdom is at hand. One of my favorite things that Jesus ever says is when he says any demon is, is exercised out of a person who's enslaved by that demon, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. Can y'all say that with me? Three, two, one. The kingdom is at hand. Every single time a lost soul who doesn't know God, who's living in their sin, comes back home to God and is adopted by him, let's say it together, the kingdom is at hand. Every single time a brother or sister on the streets who doesn't have a home finds a home at Community First, the kingdom is at hand. Every single time men and women gather in this room and we partake in the Lord's Supper together, despite all of our differences, the kingdom is at hand. We don't have an option of being cynical about the church because it's the bride of Christ. It's his kingdom come on earth. And I know that so many people in this room may have stories about the, the church letting you down and disappointing you. And, and I have nothing to say other than I'm sorry. But even in all of the messed up churches you've attended, Christ looks at the church and says, this is my bride, this is the kingdom of God, come on earth. And nothing, not the world or Satan or sin or death, even the church cannot prevent God from breaking into this world with his kingdom. Now, I know I've got some optimists in the room. I, I can be that way too. And so I, I've got to, we've all got to get a kingdom of God perspective, all the cynics and all the optimists, okay? There have been times in our church's history, man, when we felt invincible. Churches were full. People knew and read the Bible every single day. Marriages weren't breaking. Families flourished. And we thought nothing can stop us. And we've had a lot of challenges since then. And we can be discouraged and we can think, well, maybe God isn't at work as much. But we need, even optimists, we need a kingdom of God perspective. Because before Christ comes back, we can expect wars and rumors of wars. There are going to be churches that shut their doors. There are going to be kids that walk away from our faith. If cynicism is a temptation for us, so is naive optimism. Until the end, when Christ returns, we will be haunted by sin in our lives by the schemes of our enemy. The kingdom-minded perspective challenges all of us, whether you're tempted to cynicism or optimism. Now, because I'm a dad, I feel obligated to read World War II history, so I'm going to use a World War II analogy. Just bear with me. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and defeated sin, death, and Satan. The war against those enemies is over, but there are still battles between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. We will still struggle in this life, but at his second coming, all of those things will 
be totally eradicated, fully defeated. Our enemies really, really will end, come to a total and complete end. In World War II, the famous D-Day invasion that happened at Normandy sealed the deal for Hitler's defeat. But there is a lot of time in between D-Day and Victory in Europe Day. There was a whole year between June 6, 1944 and May 8, 1945. That was a lot of time for battles to still be lost, soldiers to still be killed. We are waiting for the end. The war is won. Jesus has defeated our enemies, but the, our, our enemy is still trying to take us down with him. The power of sin still lingers with temptations and vices. Death continues to enslave us to fear. But here's the good news. Satan's time is ticking. Death's time is ticking. Sin's time is ticking. It's only a matter of time before they are finally and fully defeated. For the three of you who love that analogy, thank you for being in the room. This is such good news. God gives us his kingdom, and his kingdom is bigger than one local church. It's older than this church. It will outlast every single church that ever has closed its doors. It continues to advance each and every year, just like a mustard seed, growing slowly but surely. It continues to sprout and grow, though we do not know how. May that kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer again today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.